Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located off the coast of West Africa, with the capital Praia, a population of 565,000, and functioning as a presidential democracy, is Cabo Verde. In 1991, the archipelago of Cabo Verde, or Cape Verde as it is often known, introduced multi-party democracy. This was followed by a new constitution in 1997. Despite notable unrest across much of West Africa over the last three decades, the small island nation has maintained relatively stable governments and transitions of power. As a result, it is rated in the top three most stable African countries. However, the former Portuguese colony still suffers from notable graft and corruption. But how did this small African nation get this way? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Cabo Verde, I'm joined on the show by Aleda Borges, who is a research associate at King's College London and a Cabo Verde native. Aleda, welcome to the show. And I'm wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about the history of Cabo Verde or Cape Verde. Yes, Cape Verde is a very small archipelago. It just has over 4,000 square kilometers terms of size so it's a really small country yeah wow that is small and it's located approximately 500 kilometers from the coast of senegal in west africa so it's a really really small country it was known to be to have been uninhabited until the 15th century when the portuguese arrived and then they established what became known as the first european colonial settlement in the tropics and because the islands were located in a convenient location to play a role in the transatlantic slave trade Interesting. So the Portuguese arrive on this uninhabited set of islands in 1462 and set up a colony there, using it as a kind of stopover point for slaves as they were brought from Africa to the Americas. How did the islands develop as a result? So it was actually a quite prosperous um, a colony for, for Portugal. But then um, in the 19th century, due to the suppression of the Atlantic slave trade, the archipelago declined economically. And also Cape Verde experienced severe droughts. I mean, its history is of actually experiencing quite substantial famines that affected the population significantly. And in fact, I mean, Cape Verde is known as a nation with a very significant diaspora because people really had no choice but to migrate. Right. So you initially have this more prosperous period during the slave trade boom. But as slaving is outlawed, you have an economic decline that even results in a lot of people leaving the islands. And this is in part what leads to the drive for independence, right? They were not really happy with the way the archipelago was being governed by Portugal. And so there were continued claims and demands for independence, which they achieved in 1975. And was this independence struggle relatively peaceful in Cabo Verde? Uh, it's important to note that the independence movement came about really following the 1974 revolution in Portugal, a revolução dos Graves, the 25th of April, as it's often known. And then there was the uh, Partido Africano para Independência da Guiné-Bissau e Cabo Verde, the PIGC, which became an active political movement uh, with a stronghold in Cape Verde as well, because its leader, Amil Cacabal, his parents were Cape Verdean and he was born in Guinea-Bissau and he was very, you know, strong. He believed, he believed strongly that Cape Verde should become independent alongside Guinea-Bissau. And so he led a very strong campaign of independence for both Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau. But the campaign itself and the, the let's say, the, the military struggle took place within Guinea-Bissau and not Cape Verde. It's just that Cape Verdeans 
traveled to Guinea-Bissau as well as campaigned in Portugal. Students, for example, are well known for have, to have participated in this. And in December 1974, the PGC, which is the party and Portugal signed an agreement providing for a transitional government composed of Portuguese and Cape Verdeans to then initiate the process of independence, which was achieved after a national assembly was instructed in 1975 so that independence was declared on the 5th of July. Yeah, right. But that's after almost 300 years of colonization. So how does the country fare after independence? It became independent with Guinea-Bissau, as I mentioned, with one joint movement, right? But then in 1980, there was a coup in Guinea-Bissau. And so this kind of strained the relations between the two nations because they were governed under the same party, the PAEGC, but they were still kind of separate political units and the different uh, societies altogether. And so these relationships were not really working. And so after the, the coup, this, it became impossible to think about uh, joint leadership as it was before. So Cape Verde really abandoned its hope for unity with Guinea-Bissau, which was very much driven by, by Amilka Cabral. Interesting, because Cabo Verde has remained relatively peaceful and coup-free since its inception. What do you think drove this? In 1975, when Cape Verde became independent, it was very resource poor, and it was declared as an unviable state by international organizations such as the World Bank and the IMF. So there was a strong concern for whether Cape Verde could stand on its own feet because it experiences severe drought and it doesn't really have any resources. So what are these islands going to be doing in the middle of ocean by themselves? And so I think uh, from the perspective of the government and the PE specifically, there was this clear intent to make Cape Verde viable, so strong uh, economic policy and a determination to make it work. And so I think Cape Verde progressed quite well in that regard because of this push. Okay, so it was this economic drive that led the government to pursue relatively stable and broadly beneficial policies. But it's only in the 1990s that the country actually becomes a multi-party democracy, right? By the 1980s, this project wasn't working so well anymore because of economic pressures and the party was no longer able to deliver on strong social policies. And so responding to growing pressure also for pluralistic democracy, the PECV called for an emergency congress in 1990, in February more specifically, to discuss them constitutional changes to end this kind of regime. And so opposition groups got together and so a political party called the Movimento para a Democracia, the MPD, emerged and elections were scheduled for December 1990. Right. And the country has actually bucked the trend of many African nations by managing several peaceful transitions of power. Actually, Cape Verde is known for being quite successful in this democratization process because unlike countries like uh, Angola or Guinea-Bissau, where the Party of Independence is still the major political party in Cape, there was clear political transition and political parties winning elections is actually proper election processes taking place with alternance. And so there is change in the way elections take place. And so the first elections were held in January 1991 and the actual opposition party won. And later in 1995, they even managed to increase their majority in the National Assembly, where they won 50 out of 72 seats. So there was a clear desire for change, and that was actually allowed within the democratization process. And so Cape Verde is regarded as having successfully transitioned to democracy. And so how has it maintained this stability? Linking to that question of viability that I mentioned, it's very important for Cape Verde to seem stable 
and to actually be viable. And considering that the nation itself is very dependent on foreign direct investment and on, I mean, it's not a nation that can survive on its own, if, if any nation can actually claim to survive on its own, but Cape certainly wouldn't be able to. It's very dependent on the outside world. And so because of this concern, it's very important that Cape Verde maintains its good reputation. In fact, when we look at the Ibrahim Index for Good Governance that we have in the context of Africa, Cape Verde always features among the top five. And this has been the case for, the, for over a decade. Cape Verde is stable in the sense that it's always within the top five. And I think that shows that there is a clear commitment for the nation to follow international guidelines and what good governance looks like and seem to be doing things in the right way. Right. So that stability is almost part of the Cabo Verde brand, as it were. How interesting. But the country still has its issues, right? Despite this very strong record for good governance and seems to be doing well, when you look at the perception of the population, then it's, they don't actually match. Because the international community think, okay, Cape is doing so well, it's a clear example, of everything is so great. You hardly meet anyone from the outside that would think that, okay, there are uh, issues of concern in Cape Verde, but then when you speak to the population, then these two don't necessarily match. What do you mean? In fact, the Afrobarometer that does uh, frequent uh, surveys uh, across the African continent, in each last survey uh, found, so this was just published in 2021, found that about 75% of people in Cape Verde are not at all or not very satisfied with democracy in Cape Verde. And if we consider youth, as a subsect of that population, so between the age of 18 and 35, which is the criteria for youth in the context of Africa, according to the African Union, it's 82%. So we have 82% of youth, which is the majority of the population anyway, if you consider, of course, the children as well, but okay, let's just focus on 18 to 35. They are not at all satisfied with the way democracy is going. And when we ask them more specifically, what are the points of concern, unemployment comes up as 71% of youth are concerned about the chronic inability of the state to deliver on job creation. And I think when we consider that, it aligns with the question of viability of the, of the state and its, its democratic system, because if it can't deliver on quality of life for its citizens, then it becomes quite an issue. And I think it goes back to how we consider questions around governance and what are the priorities when we think about the viability of states and, and what they're able to deliver to their population. So it's a little bit difficult. And also when we look at questions around gender equality, that also becomes an issue. We've never had a head of state in Cape Verde as a woman. Yeah, right. So it's important to understand about the country that whilst it's doing well, especially in comparison to many African nations, in regards to its democracy, there are still many issues that the country is struggling to tackle. Well, thanks for bringing us up to date with the country. But before we let you go, though, would you mind just telling us about a festival event or celebration that's unique to Cabo Verde? I can only think of, so we have different saints that are celebrated, you know, like Ireland has St. Patrick's. We have every region in Cape Verde will have a saint that is kind of the patron of that region. And so every month there will be a celebration dedicated to a particular saint. And so everyone gets together and they celebrate that saint. And like the region will become known for the celebration of that saint. So everyone kind of travels. And it's a really interesting celebration because there is that religious element where everyone goes to church and they kind of dedicate a mass to the saint, etc. But then they come home and it's really exciting because you even see the diaspora comes home for these events. And so if you're from a particular region, you will strive to go home 
for the celebration of that thing because it's the time when the whole community comes together and there's big celebrations, lots of food, and so it can be quite exciting. But then we have other celebrations, not celebrations, but festivals and events like carnival, but you know, that's not specific to Cape Breton because Brazil also has it. And we also have Tabanka festivals that also link to religion, but it, those are also common within the, the African continent. So I can only think of our, of our different same kind of celebrations. And it's, it's interesting because even young people, like they won't be religious, but they will take that very seriously. And they wow, yes, we have to celebrate that. I'm not sure they go to church. <laughs> that often but they will be very passionate about that oh yeah you have to come and then people will tell you oh when is this particular holiday like in my region you have to come you have to come to our celebration and so all the different houses get very uh full with people from all over the island sometimes other islands as well and it's a it's a beautiful celebration it sounds really beautiful well thanks so much for your time today Aleda. No, no, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's always good to speak about Cape Verde, and I think your project is really interesting. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Aleda Borges. Join us next time, where we'll be discussing the Southeast Asian nation of Cambodia, which has been impacted by significant global events throughout its history. As always, please do read us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at How My Country Works for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Cabo Verde or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Luke Trubert. See you next time and remember to keep asking How My Country Works.